we move in mood um, uh, now. Uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll uh, perhaps um, uh, be aware that we've been studying eight visions that Zechariah was uh, given, visions that actually encapsulated God's whole intention for his world for the rest of history. His intention was that he would defeat evil and he would forgive his people. But now, um, the scene changes, and the year, two years later. Let's ask God to uh, help us understand that passage of Scripture, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, so much of your word seems... um, lost in the midst of ancient customs and traditions and speeches to specific situations that uh, are far from us. Please, Lord, we pray, help us to see what you were saying to those people and therefore what you say to us today. Help us to learn the lessons that uh, you would teach us this morning. Help us to meet you afresh, Lord, and understand our relationship with you with new passion and depth. Bring your word alive for us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, help us to put it into practice in our lives. Please be with us as we open your word together. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, how should we live? That's the question Zechariah was faced those um, two years after that night of uh, visions that we've been looking at. Those great visions were given to Zechariah in, uh, in the second year of King Darius, we're told. But um, uh, now we're in the fourth year, two years later. A delegation of people from the, uh, uh, the countryside have come with a quite specific question. Did you see that in verses 1 to 3? In the fourth year of King Darius, the people of Bethel sent Shareza and Regem Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Actually, the question is more significant than at first it may seem. That The fast mentioned was designed to mourn the exile. More than a lifetime before, God had allowed the nation of Israel to go into exile because of their sin, and ever since, God's people had fasted and mourned several times a year. This fifth month fast was actually specifically to mourn and commemorate the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, though, the people are returning from the promised land. Now, that uh, destruction pictured there um, uh, of the temple was uh, rapidly being reversed. They were rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. 
The temple was still two years off being uh, finished at this point, but its completion was in sight. More than that, uh, uh, these uh, uh, visions of Zechariah, as we've seen, were full of magnificent promises. God hadn't only promised to um, restore the temple, he'd made promises that go far, far beyond that, predicting, in fact, that God's people would be a global community of uh, forgiven people, predicting that God would one day defeat all evil. But one day, uh, the light of God's presence would shine in this world with a brilliance that it had never done before. That was Zechariah's uh, gospel. That was the extraordinary message of uh, those, those visions, the wonderful good news that they had received. Uh, in the light of such uh, um, gospel good news, surely their uh, present troubles seemed light and momentary. These uh, visitors had obviously been pondering that for a couple of years, and they have this question. Is it then still appropriate to mourn the destruction of the temple all those years ago? Should we really fast still? Because the temple is not quite yet rebuilt, because Zechariah's promises haven't quite been fully fulfilled? Or actually... Should we feast? Should we now be celebrating in the light of these very great and precious promises? And that's still a very relevant question for Christians today to ask, isn't it? We live um, uh, even closer to the fulfillment of Zechariah's promises. God has fulfilled his promises in sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we can begin a relationship with God which will continue into eternity. But the fullness of what uh, God promises through Zechariah isn't ours yet. In one sense, you see, we live like those Israelites lived, having received the promises and started to see something of them come true, But actually, to be honest, the fullness of those promises still seems a long way off. Should we then celebrate because of what God's going to do? Or mourn because of what God hasn't done yet? It's actually certainly at the fashion in churches uh, today to only celebrate, only rejoice, isn't it? Church meetings these days are called celebrations. Virtually all modern songs are, are upbeat and, uh, and jolly. Gone are the days when a church would have a day of mourning and fasting together, as they used to in previous generations, previous centuries. Songs in the minor key are now obsolete. And uh, is this mood of celebration important then? Or actually... Uh, um, should we spend at least some of our time crying, how long, O Lord, before you fulfill your promises? We need to listen to God's answer to these uh, inquirers who come from Bethel. Bethel. And actually, the answer comes in the form of a question. Chapter 7, verse 4. 
Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Zechariah, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? When you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? God's moved the goalposts actually here in his answer, isn't he? They were asking about certain practicalities of the liturgical calendar, and God says effectively, I'm not very interested in that question. In chapters 7 and 8, actually, um, God wants to get to the very heart of the matter. That's what these two chapters are all about. There, the issue actually goes far, far deeper and what God's people should do when they gather together. Now there's a real issue that uh, lies below that, that chapter 7 outlines for us very clearly. It's this one. What place does God have in our lives? It is possible, you see, to lead a religious life, even a Christian life without God having any part in it at all. See, when the Israelites fasted and mourned the loss of the temple, God says, was it for me? Or was it actually just a ceremony of delicious, exquisite self-pity? feels good, doesn't it, sometimes? To wail and mourn our loss. But that can be an entirely selfish reaction. When they feasted, says God, on other occasions and uh, celebrated God's goodness, were they drawing deeper into God's delight in how he made his world and his great intentions for his world and his very character as the happy God? Or actually, were they just stuffing their faces? Were they just having a good time, filling their stomachs, worshipping the great and wonderful God who loves to be worshipped constantly, the God me? Make no mistake about it, says God. The people uh, were fasting and, and uh, feasting according to the correct liturgical calendar long ago, before they were sent into exile. In those days, he says, they were at rest and prosperous in verse 7. But actually, if we've been started following Zechariah up to, up to now, we know that Babylon was at rest and prosperous in Zechariah's day. And God has promised Babylon will be overthrown. Just as God overthrew his own people who were at rest and prosperous before. Because he was not at the center of their lives. Verse 11, 
they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord was very angry. When I called, they didn't listen, he says. So when they called, I would not listen. I scattered them. The, uh, the consequences of not listening are very clear. I scattered them. I made the land desolate, he says in verse uh, 14. Actually, they made the land desolate. They made the pleasant land desolate, he says, because, you see, it was the inevitable consequence of their rebellion. They refused to listen to God, so God treated them in an exactly symmetrical way. They turned their backs and stopped up their ears, so I did too. They would not listen to the words of the prophets who warned them, who spoke to their hearts. So says God, I was very angry. He destroyed their temple. He made their land desolate. He left them powerless under the thumb of Babylon. Those were all vivid memories to those people. Why did he do that? Because they weren't following the calendar correctly? No. Because God was not at the heart of their lives. They'd kept the worship going. They fasted with the best of them. They feasted with the best of them. They sang all the best worship songs. Why, even they might have had a data projector if the technology was there. But it didn't make any difference. Their knowledge of God was about as accurate as Alistair Campbell's knowledge of Iraq. And they were lost. We need to be very clear about that in our minds. See, there's a danger for these people and for us that we just concentrate on getting it right on the surface. And we lose actually the heart of the issue. Why are we here? What are we doing here? Is it for me? Or is it because God is at the center of my life? And I long to see him glorified. He tells us, though, very clearly also the marks of those who listen, of those who do truly listen to, to him. What are we to look for then amongst us as a mark 
of uh, real lives committed to God. It's in verses 8 and 8 to 10. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts do not think evil of each other. Justice, mercy, compassion, care for the weak and needy, guarding our hearts more than anything else. Oh yes, on their own, of course. Those are as empty as anything else. But if they do not appear as an inevitable result of our lives of worship, then our worship is a sham. How then should we live? Whether we are fasting or feasting, whether we are mourning or celebrating, we are called to live obedient lives that reflect the character of God. Yes, God is the one who is just and merciful and compassionate. And if his character is not shining in our lives, then anything else that may be there is useless, worthless, meaningless, a sham. As I've been uh, thinking through this passage this week, I, ha I have to say that I I've come to a, a rather uncomfortable conclusion, or perhaps not conclusion, but I've been dogged by uncomfortable thoughts. I'm not sure how well we measure up to this chapter. For different reasons, I've spent quite a lot of time explaining this church to, uh, to, to outsiders over the last um, month or so. And I've had to explain that there is a high proportion of people in the church who do have specific problems and difficulties. And that, that in turn has meant that as a church, often we're not as involved as we might have been in reaching out to others on, on the edge or, or beyond. But I have to confess that I have felt distinct discomfort as I've explained that to people. And this passage in many ways has, has crystallized that discomfort for me personally. Could it be that actually we are just too self-centered? Could it be that in fact far too much of our Christian life is ordered around me rather than God. Here's a test. How eagerly do we long to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ? Because that's the greatest service we can do for others, isn't it? We're running a Contagious Christianity course at the moment. And before the first one, we had a church meeting. A very good number of people turned up to that. But I wonder how many of us walked out at the end of that church meeting before the contagious Christianity, not to go to another important engagement, but to go home and watch the telly.
How many decided to stay in on the second week rather than attend? Of course, some of us do have important engagements. But do all of us who weren't there? If God is judging us by our by, by our, our commitment to others, how well do we measure up? Well, let me give you another test. This time, uh, more focused actually on practical compassion, which uh, Zechariah seems to be concentrating on. The church owns a house, which at the moment is used by asylum seekers. When we first decided to let that house to uh, asylum seekers, we asked whether people would be prepared to volunteer to be part of a little team to demonstrate the love of Christ to those uh, people. Nobody volunteered. Um, There's a a Kosovar family who've lived in that house now for for three years, and the lady has come to to church once. She's had a few intermittent visits from uh, people in the church, Um, but to my deep embarrassment, she told me just a, a few weeks ago that she had concluded, nobody cares because I'm just an asylum seeker. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the alien or the poor. Oh, I'm absolutely certain she was having a bad day. She's got a tiny baby and she'd been up all night. But I did know what she meant. Now, there will be some here who are feeling cut to the heart and wondering how in their already busy uh, schedule of compassion and care they can fit in just a little bit more demonstration of compassion to just a few more people. And, And perhaps we do, all of us, need to think in those categories. But it's actually not those people who really need to hear this chapter. There are others of us who will be here saying, well, well, I've got enough trouble of my own. Depresses me. I struggle in my faith. Surely I should concentrate on that rather than good works. I struggle with my emotions. Surely God wants me to get myself well and whole before I could possibly give to anyone else. I'm busy at work. And I can show compassion to people there. Isn't that enough? I just don't have the confidence that I could actively be involved of anything, with anything. Surely I'm excused. Let, let, let me ask you, what is the core desire of your life? Is it to be happy, healthy, Content, satisfied within yourself? Or is it to be happy and content in God? Because we will not be happy and content in that way without sacrificial obedience. 
We will not be happy and complete unless we are devoted to justice and mercy and compassion and to loving the loveless. We live in a culture full of broken people and the, and the deep temptation is for those broken people especially to become entirely focused in on themselves. I hear it all the time in the way that, I, that people speak today. There's a deep danger that we slip into our own self-oriented little world where God actually gets pushed to the periphery. In effect, we are not listening to him. In effect, we have turned our backs on him and it should come as no surprise if we feel that he is not listening to us, that he has turned his back on us, that he has allowed desolation to come upon us. Eventually, if our lives are devoted to that, then the desolation will be as dramatic and complete as it was for Jerusalem when it was raised to the ground. We must be different from the people in the world around if we claim to be Christians. I, I find myself l- looking at, at society and at the risk of em- embarrassing him saying, saying where are the David and Edith leavers of the future generation? Where are the people who will serve God faithfully and sacrificially and energetically for their whole lives? Well, there are some. But if this world is really to be touched, we need to be a community entirely devoted to that. Let me give you some practical suggestions. What about volunteering at the porch? To be a Christian uh, influence there amongst those who work with the homeless. What about um, uh, ringing up Help the Aged and saying, are there any elderly people who need visitation? I can tell you there will be in East Oxford. What about being one of those 15 people who go up to Tracy at the end of the service and say, yes, I'll do the fight? What about praying hard and being ready in the autumn when uh, there are likely to be, we are likely to be discussing new initiatives amongst asylum seekers, new initiatives um, uh, with with Richard Brewster amongst uh, teenagers. What about making sure that you are ready to serve God passionately and faithfully? amongst people who don't know him or who need help. The Apostle Paul uses an image in uh, his letter to the Philippians that he is being poured out like a drink offering. The drink offering in the Old Testament was an extra one. You didn't have to do it. But if you wanted in some way to to show your devotion to God, well, you could take on the top of all your other sacrificial offerings, you could add a drink offering. That's what I am, says Paul. In one sense, I don't have to do anything. I am saved by grace. God has poured out his goodness on me despite the fact that I was a sinner and remain a sinner but for the forgiving work of Christ. 
But in another sense, my heart has been so profoundly changed that I cannot do anything but give a voluntary sacrifice of myself, my whole life, to God. Because frankly, if I didn't, it would be a denial of what God has done for me. When you fast, when you feast, says God, the actual practice doesn't matter that much. It's whether I am at the center. Chapter 8 moves us on, and and we can only look at it uh, relatively briefly. But it expands this uh, vision again and reiterates some of the key um, things that we have learned in chapter 7. In the end, says God, I am jealous, zealous. I will jealously guard my people. Again, chapter 8, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. I'm not going to allow my people to be destroyed as they were in the past. The immediate focus, of course, of this is uh, is the, the rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. But as we've seen again and again in Zechariah, the final perspective goes far, far beyond that to include God's people now, God's church. God je- burns with zealous commitment to us. He is determined to dwell amongst us. Verse 3, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. We will be a place of truth and holiness. God is determined that it should be so. This community will be a healthy one in which old people thrive, in which young children are treasured. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a cane in his hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing here. Yes, elderly people in the church, you will not be discarded to lie in a back room. You can sit in the streets. You can be part of that community, contributing. Yes, younger people. You will not be told you must be seen and not heard. You will be free to play in the community of God's people. That is what God is determined to create amongst us. And uh, anyone who knows anything about how... um, a community's work will uh, um, uh, will sympathize with verse six. It may seem marvelous to the remnants of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me? Declares the Lord Almighty. No, because He can do miracles, and I tell you, if He creates a community like that, it needs to be a miracle. It will be as well a prosperous. Community. Look at verse 12 of uh, chapter 8. 
The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will pour their dew, will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. So, says Zechariah, so, in the light of God's determination to do something marvellous amongst his people, do not be afraid. Twice Zechariah actually says, do not be afraid. Once in verse 13, once in verse 15. Both times he effectively says, don't be afraid, be obedient. Picking up that theme from chapter 7. Look at what he says in uh, verse 13, for instance. As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O, o Judah and Israel, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Or look at verse 15. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plead, plot evil against your neighbor. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Fear actually lurks at the, at behind so much practical a reluctance to be obedient. We don't recognize it very often, but it's there. I fear I might hope not have the stamina for sacrificial service to God, so I won't do it. I fear I might be hurt if I give my, love, my, my life compassionately to other people, so I won't do it. I feel I may not be able to lead others and get left alone and isolated, so I won't do it. I feel that my fragile faith may actually just, just give up if I'm sacrificially committed to God, so I won't do it. I will withdraw. And, and God says, no, I will look after you. Don't be afraid, so get out there and serve me with your whole life. Be obedient in this self-centered world. Serve others. My determination is to bless you, he says. You strengthen your hands and I will strengthen your heart. Don't let fear dominate your life. God is determined to bless he says, so that actually all fasting will be history. Verse 19. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the feasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions, happy festivals. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Again, that response to God's promise. Or look at verse 22. Many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take hold of the robe of one Jew. Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you, they say. Interestingly, chapter 7 began with a little group of people coming to entreat the Lord about what their liturgical practice should be. Chapter 8, eight ends with a vision 
that people from every tribe and nation throughout the world will come to entreat the Lord, saying, we have heard God is with you. Those people coming from Bethel were just the tiniest little anticipation of what God intended to do, what God intends to do through us. He will bless this whole world through his global community of people sacrificially committed to him. The question is whether you and I will be part of that. Whether you will actually come to the end of your days having a list as long as your arm of people who you know in eternity are going to say, thank you. Thank you that you put yourself out for me. Thank you that you cared for me. Thank you that you showed God to me because you were committed to justice and compassion and mercy. Or whether in fact you'll get to the end of your days and suddenly realize that though we were going through the motions, perhaps for year after year after year, there was nothing there. We were desolate. Choice is ours. It's the most momentous choice we'll ever make. Who is at the center of my life? Is it me? Or is it God? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to confess to you that again and again you get pushed to the edge and we go through the motions. Please forgive us, Lord.
We want to ask, Lord, that you would so impress the good news, the gospel, the great truths of your offer of forgiveness, your promise of your presence with us, your final defeat of all wickedness, the glory of the eternal new creation, all achieved through Jesus. We pray that you would so impress those truths on us that fear would melt away and we would once again be willing to say, I give my all for you. I am prepared to be poured out like a drink offering. Take my life and let it be ever, only, all for thee. Amen.